have another chance to make it right with me. If I didn't go searching, you would have died with this secret. Nobody would have knew about me. One thing she always used to tell me, she was, no matter how many times we fight, you're never going to get rid of me. I'm always going to be your mother. And I used to tell her, well, then act like a mother. Me and, and my siblings, we lived different lives. How we were raised. Completely different lives. Jim had a tough childhood growing up in his adopted family. He was subjected to every kind of abuse. When he decided he was ready to search, he got his non-identifying information. He was able to connect with a man who could find out who his birth mother was, and I'm still wondering how he did that before DNA. Jim connected with both his maternal and paternal families, and as Jim says himself, his reunion has been a roller coaster. Here is my interview with Jim. So how old were you when you were adopted and where were you adopted from? I was six months of age when they adopted me. I was born in 1962, January 22nd, 1962. I know that for sure now. Hmm. I was born in uh, San Jose, California. And the parents that adopted me raised me in Gilroy, California, which is about 30 minutes from San Jose where I was born at. So you recently had a project regarding the dates surrounding your adoption. Yes, yes. I was looking at my paperwork when my birthday is coming around. And last month was January 22nd. That was my 62nd birthday. But when I was looking at the paperwork that I had that my parents gave me, it was paperwork that came from the hospital or wherever I was. Mm-hmm. And But there was a name of Freddie on top of the paper. And I always wondered who Freddie was. But on the pieces of paper, it was five pieces. They all had different dates. Hmm. And Social Security, when they started sending me uh, paperwork to tell me what I would get when I turned 62, they had me being born in 61. Hmm. And so that was kind of weird. So that's why I went to the county administration about, shoot, a month and a half ago to talk to them and ask them, why do I have different dates on these pieces of paper? And Social Security had me at 61. So she says, well, you know what? We'll try to open up the records, see if the judge will open up your records to find out what your actual date is, because they couldn't figure it out either. And so that's when I sat down with her. She says, okay, well, we'll get back to you in about three months. And it only took, shoot, a month, month and a half. I got the answer yesterday. So and uh, so I know who Freddie is, too, on that piece of paper. That was me. They named me Freddie in the foster care system where I was for six months. Whoever was taking care of me, they gave me a name of Freddie. And like my wife says, they're going to call you Baby Doe all that time, right? So they had to give me a name. So my actual name changed to James Serrano a year later when I was about a year old because that's when the adoption, the whole thing took place in the courts and so that's when i became james serrano like i said i put that on my facebook page yesterday and a lot of my friends and stuff like were, were starting calling me freddie <laughs> and, and telling me happy birthday because i finally know exactly that i am 62 and not 63 that i was thinking i was well that's because good the, to know <laughs> yes so i'm here younger <laughs> You were named Freddie when you were in foster care. Were you in foster care with a family? I know you'd said before that you didn't know if you were. I have, I have no idea. Oh, okay. You yeah, because I had been asked, well, my 
Paula's mother didn't know. She she didn't even really remember the day I was born or it was night or day or the time. All I remember her telling me was her brother, which is my uncle Rupert, took her to the hospital to give birth to me. Mm-hmm. She already had two kids at the time. She had my sister Wanda and my brother Bobby, and, and there were four and three mm-hmm. at the time of my birth. So all I remember her telling me, because she passed away like two years ago. So all I remember her telling me in the 20 years that I, I knew her was that she couldn't remember if it was night and day. Hmm. And it was like, it was, it was a fog to her. So how did you find out that you were adopted? Or is that something that you always knew? Well, actually, I kind of figured it out myself because my family that I was raised with, they always used to tease me that they got me at a supermarket. And hmm. I always wondered, I knew they always tell me that. And I couldn't figure it out till probably about, I don't know, I say maybe around 11 years old, I kind of figured it out that, okay, I guess I am adopted. Hmm. And because I didn't really look like my brothers and sisters, and I didn't really look like my dad. And I mean, a little bit, but not, I mean, maybe the same skin color, but, but that's about it. So I kind of figured out that I was adopted. That's one thing I always ask my sister that I was raised with, because they adopted a girl at the same time they adopted me. But when I found out, that I was adopted. Uh, there was a lot of things going through my life when I was in the early age of my childhood. I, I just admitted to my wife and daughter when I was 52. I'm 62 now. So I admitted to them when I was 52 that I was uh, sexually abused by a 20-year-old male cousin when I was uh, between the ages of 9 and 11. Oh. So I held that secret for since I, until I was 52. Yeah. So I told them in a car one day we were going to get ice cream and my wife's a school teacher, so she has a lot of things about child abuse, you know, that they teach her in school right. for the kids. So that's the day I, I finally said, okay, I need to tell them. So that's when I told them that I was sexually abused. And my sister told me when I asked her why nobody told me that I was adopted. And she couldn't figure it out why. She didn't know why. All she remembered knowing is that they adopted me because they had a little boy my parents had raised me that little boy named georgie he passed away when he was like i don't know maybe like two years old mm-hmm. and so i was kind of like replacing him because my mom was going through a mental breakdown so that's the reason why they adopted i remember my mom wanted a girl but my dad insisted she wanted a boy i guess maybe to replace georgie yeah. So that's why they adopted me, but that came from her. That came. That's the reason why they adopted me. And, and like I said, she still didn't tell me why nobody told me I was adopted. But she did tell me that my whole attitude of life, and I came more of a, a rebellious kid as a teenager. But see, she, she didn't know. Nobody knew about the molestation part. And the abandonment part that I went through as a kid, you know, being an adoptee, they didn't know anything about that. So th- I think that's what I was, I changed my whole lifestyle and attitude towards life when I was a teenager because actually I started drinking when I was 10 years old. In sixth grade, I started drinking and it was just because to fit in with friends that I, I knew. And, you know, of course, you know, you're adoptee is a people person, so you always want to have everybody like you you go along with the crowd so that's when i started drinking when i was in sixth grade and actually i just celebrated 24 years of sobriety because i quit on my 38th birthday and yeah but i drank all those years i couldn't say i drank every day it's just that when i did drink i didn't know when to stop and that's when my wife used to tell me babe you drank but you never knew when to stop i wouldn't i wouldn't stop so but you know i was going through a lot of things 
in my life. And I've only been married for 40 years, so she's seen all my ups and downs and gone through all the trauma that I went through as an adoptee. And then especially when I went searching and found my biological family. So you had the one sister who was also adopted. Did they have their own biological children as well? Yes, they had two daughters and one son. They were a lot older than me, so when they used to, I guess, take me in the stroller, people used to think that there was their child. Hmm. They used to think I was their son because my parents were a lot older when they adopted us. And my sisters and them, they're in their mid-70s now, I think, closer to 80 now, I think. So that's what happened there. My sister that was adopted with me, she was a year older than me. She's not my biological sister or not blood or nothing. They just adopted both of us at the same time. Do you feel like you were treated differently because you were adopted? Personally, uh, yeah, because the only reason I was treated different thing is, you know, I, I kind of like don't blame my dad because maybe my dad, that's how he was raised. But I never got no affection. I never was told those three words that everyone loves to hear. I love you. I never heard that. The first time I ever heard I love you was from my mom. And that was when I was 37 years old when I told him I was going to go start searching for my biological family. So maybe it kind of scared her. And thinking I was trying to replace them, but I was just trying to, you know, find out who I was. And my dad, he, I mean, he never even told me he loved me, but, and we both worked at the same company for 30 years. We both retired at the same company, but he still never really was a, a type of dad that was affectionate. I still remember the day that my dad retired at his retirement party and I uh, gave him a hug. And I told him, I love you, dad. And he just pushed me away. And I always remember that. He just pushed me away and says, oh, just get away from me. And that stuck, that will stick in my head for the rest of my life. That I tried to get some affection from my dad, and he just didn't know how to do it. But I don't know. Maybe he didn't get that same treatment as a child. You know, he didn't change the, I guess some people say generation curse. Mm. But with me, with my 37-year-old daughter, I did a whole 180 how we raised my daughter. I mean, there's nothing but love, and I love you. And I became the man that I needed growing up. In right. other words, so. So what was it that made you want to find your birth family? Was it really just that question of who am I? Yes. Who am I? And my daughter was 16 and, you know, you go, go to the doctor and you don't know your family history. And I didn't want my daughter growing up like that. So one day I was watching TV and there was a program. I don't know what actual it was. It might have been Oprah. I don't know. But the show was talking about people trying to find their biological families. So they introduced how you do that and they talked about non-identity information you could get, right? So that's the first thing I said. I told my wife, I goes, hey, uh, I think I'm ready. She goes, you ready to go look? And goes, yeah, I think I am. And I watched this program. They said, yeah, you could go to the county where you're adopted from and you could go ask for your non-identity information. They'll give it to you. And I said, oh, shoot, okay. But of course, the hardest thing I had to do was I had to go talk to my parents and tell them if they had any paperwork because... I was going to start a search. And of course, my mom was upset that I was going to go look. And my dad just looked at me and says, are you ready to find out what's out there? And I go, I don't know, dad. I, I just need to know who I am. And I always remember my dad saying, you're a Serrano. That's who you are. And I told him, I goes, well, no, dad, I, I, I'm not a Serrano. I don't have the Serrano blood in me. And he says, okay, well, here's the paperwork. That's the paperwork that, that had Freddie on there. That's, yeah. that's all they had. So they gave that to me. Oh, and my adoption paper when I actually got adopted the date. And so I started my search. I started my search at 36 and a half, 37. That's when I started searching. So with that limited information, how did you find your birth family? 
Uh, okay, this is I'll make this fast. Uh, so <laughs> I went to the county records and asked for my non-identifying information. And she said, well, okay, well, it'll take about three, four months to get to you. Maybe six months. I just, oh, okay. So I got kind of discouraged on that. So maybe about a month, month and a half later, went to my mailbox and opened up the mailbox. And there was the county of Santa Clara. It, it was a letter. And I said, oh, shoot, did I get a ticket or is this for jury <laughs> duty? You know, that's where I first thing I thought. Yeah. So I opened it up, and it was my non-identity information. As a matter of fact, they sent me another copy uh, yesterday in the mail. And what it said is that your mother was 5 feet, 89 pounds. She had two kids at the time of your birth. She did a little bit of business school, and she was living with your grandparents. She had a brief affair with your father that was 5'7", medium built, dark hair, dark eyes. He had a 10th grade education, and they worked full-time. And that was it. They weren't interested in marriage. So it was just like a brief affair. I consider it just a one-night stand. So once I got that, like I told you, me and my dad, we used to drive concrete ready-mix trucks. We used to deliver concrete all over the Bay Area for 30 years, right? So mm-hmm. one day I went to a job site, and there was a gentleman there. His name was Carlos Bryant. And he's known me for like 20 years, right? And he says, hey, Jim, what are you bringing up to? He goes, oh, I'm looking for my biological family. And he goes, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, I mean, Joe? Joe's my dad. Joe's not your, your father? And he goes, no. He adopted me. He goes, oh, shoot. So what do you know? So I read the, oh, I didn't have the paper with me, but I remember what they said about my biological mother. And he looked at me and he goes, wow, that sounds almost just like Marie. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, well, what year were you born, Jim? He goes, 62. And he goes, that sounds like Marie, this girl that I used to date. And I heard that she got pregnant and she gave her baby up for adoption. But I haven't seen her. I goes, well, do you know where she's at? He goes, no, I haven't seen her in 38 years. And he goes, wow, that's kind of weird. Because, yeah, I'm looking at him. And Carlos is 5'7", hmm. dark hair, brown eyes, medium built. And I looked at him and goes, whoa, this is weird. And I told him that's what the paper said about my biological father. So he looked at me and he goes, wow, sure, we might be father and son. Because he knew that she got pregnant and she gave the baby up for adoption. And it was just a one-night stand with them, too. So I said, oh, okay. So back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones. So I I took off from the job site and went to this phone booth, called my wife. I goes, hey, what else does it say about my biological father on the piece of paper? She goes, well, it says that. He had a 10th grade education and then went to work full time. So I went back to the job site and Carlos says, hey, what are you doing back here? Well, I got to ask you a question, Carlos. He goes, yeah. He goes, did you graduate high school? And he goes, no, I left school at 10th grade and went to work full time. And that's exactly what the piece of paper said. And he didn't know that. And I told him that. He goes, oh, my God, I guess you you might be my son. So <laughs> about a week after that, I, I was going to work and I went to work in the driver's room and there's another driver, his name is Johnny. And he goes, Jim, I heard about you and Carlos. And I looked at him and he goes, how do you know? <laughs> he goes, well, because I used to live with Carlos's daughter, which would be your sister. And she wants to meet you. I goes, okay. So I met her and her son at a restaurant and probably about a week after that. And then I invited her to my house where I used to live, to come spend the weekend with us. So I get to know her. And then me and Carlos decided to go do a blood test. So we went and did a blood test. So a blood test usually takes like six to seven weeks to come in, right? So he was trying to find this Marie girl, and and we were already planning holidays together. I met his wife that he was married to. He lived in Hollister, about 
20 minutes from where I used to live. And uh, seven weeks later, I came back. He was negative. He wasn't my father. So that was a blow to the gut for me because I had a call and tell him. And he was upset. Yeah. Of course, I was upset because I thought I found my father. Me and my wife were talking about it. And she says, don't give up, Jim. Don't give up. And I said, okay, I won't. And then one day, my wife and, and her neighbor across the street were talking. They were talking about their husbands. And Connie was married to Dominic. Her husband's name was Dominic. And they started talking about their husbands. And then Connie said, well, you know, Dominic is adopted. Because he is. Well, Jim's adopted too. So my wife was telling Connie about my story. She goes, well, you know, Dominic found his parents, but his parents had passed away already. And he goes, go have Jim go talk to Dominic. Maybe Dominic could help him out. And I said, okay. So I went to go talk to Dominic. And I knew Dominic. I played softball with him on the softball team when I first moved over to the town. We were friends. But I didn't realize he was adopted. So I went across the street and we sat down. We talked about it. And he was in this program called Adoptees Discovery Network or something like that. But he was born in Merced County. And I was born in Santa Clara County. So he told me about it. He says, you know what? There's a chapter in Santa Clara. You should go and sit down in one of their meetings and they can help you out. I said, okay. So I contacted someone there and I met at a Kaiser Hospital building and went in there with me and my wife and six other adoptees and we sat down there and we talked to this gentleman, which I call my angel. His name is Neil Kiley. Sat down. I had all of the paperwork that my parents had gave me. And so that's one thing. My parents never wanted to know anything about my search. They weren't comfortable with it. So I never yeah. told them anything about my search. Who I found them, but so I get all the information to Neil, and he goes, uh, "Okay." And it was a meeting for maybe about two or three hours. He says, "Okay, well, go home, and then I'm going to try and find your your mother's maiden name." And I'm looking at him, "Okay, how are you going to do that?" So probably about I don't know two or three weeks after that, he calls me and goes, "Hey, I got three names for you." Because you do. He goes, "Yeah, it's three ladies. One lives in L.A., one lives in Long Beach, and one lives in San Jose." Well, San Jose is the town where I, I used to work at for 30 years. And uh, so I got all of the three names. And I had all the three addresses for these three ladies. One day, I was delivering concrete, and I was already empty from the job site. And I looked to my left, and there was the address of the house in San Jose that he gave me. I told myself, oh, you're not supposed to do it, but I did it anyway. I pulled over, and I knocked on the door. Yeah. And I asked, I said, what can I say? What can I say? I know I'll say if they ordered any concrete. <laughs> so this guy opened, the guy opened up the door and he goes, uh, hi, he goes, hi, I goes, oh, did you guys order some concrete? He goes, no. But the guy kind of looked like me, right? So, all right. So then I went away, right? So then Neil Kylie called me probably about a week after that. I was in Gilroy, the town I live in now. And he goes, uh, Jim, I found your mother. Because you did. And he goes, which one is it? He goes, it's the one that lives in San Jose. I, so that's when I had to tell him yeah. I stopped at that house two weeks ago and he goes what he goes yeah he goes why did you do that because I just had to <laughs> so so that night I made the phone call I knew I had a brother named Paul I knew I, had a, I knew I had a brother named Bobby and I had a sister named Wanda so I called the number and my biological mother's name was Norberta Montoya Dominguez Montoya was her maiden name so I called she answered the phone and I asked for Bobby. Bobby is the person that answered that door two weeks before. That was my brother that answered the door. And she goes, no, he's not here. He goes, well, how about uh, Paul? She goes, no, he's not here here. That's my younger brother. That's her son from the husband that she was married to that is still alive now. My mother passed away two years ago now. So she goes, no. I go, well, who is this? 
And I go, well, this is Jim Serrano. Because well, she goes, I know all my son's friends' names. I don't recognize your name. And I go, well, I need to ask you something. She goes, well, sure, go ahead. And I go, does January 22nd, 1962 mean anything to you? And there was just dead silence over the phone. And so, and I asked her again, does January 22nd, 1962 mean anything to you? She goes, who is this and why are you doing this to me? And I told her, I goes, this is who you might think it is. And I'm not here to disrupt your life. I just want to know any medical background that you might want to give me. I have a 16-year-old daughter at home. And it was dead silence over the phone. And then she just says, you know what? I really can't talk right now. Can I call you tomorrow? And I said, okay. So I hung up the phone. And of course, I was a wreck. So my in-laws picked me up and took me home. And me and my wife, Tina, were in bed talking about the whole situation. And the phone rang. It was Noberta. She goes, Jim, can you meet me at Valley Medical Hospital tomorrow at 10 in the morning instead of me calling you? I go, sure, sure. This is during the week, so I just called in work and said, hey, I'm sick, whatever. And she told me what she kind of looked like and what she would be driving, and she would have, like, three little kids with her. I said, okay. So I get to the parking lot, and here she comes. And she had three little kids with her, and she came, and she hugged me, and she cried in my arms, and she said she was sorry. And he says, okay, and me, I didn't really have any emotions. It wasn't like a Hallmark movie or anything like that. I just didn't have no emotions. She goes, well, you want to come with me to my kid's doctor appointments? I go, well, sure, I guess. <laughs> so I went to her doctor appointments with these kids, right? And then she told me in the, in the parking lot and when we were done, she goes, I have to tell you something, Jim. He goes, yeah, what? I have to go home and tell my husband that you exist. I have to go home and tell your siblings that you exist. Nobody knows that I give you up for adoption. So she had to go home that day to go tell her husband that she had a baby and gave it up for adoption while she had Bobby at Paul, five and three. So no one knew about me. Nobody knew about me. So she had to go home and tell them. So the next day, uh, she calls me back up and goes, hey, my husband says that. Why should we keep you away from your siblings or anything? Come and meet your, your brothers. Because all this that happened to you wasn't your fault. So it's okay. So I went the next day, or it was the next day or two days after, and met my brothers. But I didn't meet my sister because my sister was living in Montana with her husband and her family. So she had to tell everybody that I existed. And still, there was all those little kids around the house, right? So I thought it was her grandkids. So that night, I called her back up. We were still talking. I asked her, who are all those those kids? Are those are your grandkids? Are those Paul and Bobby's? Or he goes, no, Jim. I'm a foster parent. I've been a foster parent for over, I don't know. Actually, she retired at 25, 26 years being a foster parent. And there was like 500 kids came through her home. Wow. So that was kind of like a kick in the gut too for me because, so you had two kids, but you gave me up, but you took care of foster kids all your life, but you couldn't take care of me. See, so that was another thing I was dealing with. Plus, I was dealing with my mom wasn't very happy that I was looking, and then my mom developed breast cancer. So that made me feel even more guilty by doing the search. Right. Did you feel comfortable around your mother and her husband and your siblings when you first met them? Did I feel comfortable? I just felt like they were strangers. Yeah. I didn't really have any emotions, really. I've known them for shoot 21 years now and there's still not a like a bond between us were you optimistic when you first met them that you were gonna have that kind of relationship with them no i was i was more cautious because as an adoptee i I had too much trust issues i had a lot of trust issues of people i mean like i said 
the first time that I knew what love was, I'll tell you a little secret on this. I always tell this part when I always say when it was the first time I felt love. First time I felt love was when me and my wife were dating. I think probably I was about 21. And I took her out to uh, dinner. And that's the day I decided I was going to tell her that I was adopted. And as an adoptee, you've always felt people think something's wrong with you. I mean, why did they give you up? And mm-hmm. I was kind of like, I was already fell, fell in love. And I was like, okay, she's going to leave me if I tell her that I was adopted. So that day I told her I'm adopted. And she just looked at me and she says, okay and she just said that's fine and right there i said wow somebody is not leaving me i someone's not judging me even though she hadn't fell in love with me yet but still in my way of thinking i'm thinking wow somebody didn't leave me and somebody actually accepted me for who i am so that's the first time i really felt what love was all about so that's why i was very cautious around people but even though my daughter and my wife always says, you have so many friends, Jim. Because, yeah, because I was always a people pleaser all my life. I've always, you know, got along with everybody because the abandonment issues. I always wanted everybody to like me. Mm-hmm. My daughter and wife nicknamed me once in a while. They'll call me Forrest Gump. She says, you'll sit on a bench and talk to anybody. <laughs> and that's who I am. I yeah. will. I will I'll sit on a bench and talk to anybody. <laughs> And talk to them about anything. I was just cautious <laughs> getting too close to people. So how did you find out who your birth father was? Did your mother so, tell you? Yeah. So I asked her if Carlos Bryan, that's the one that I did the blood test with. I asked her if he was my father. And she goes, no, that's not your father. Your father is Raw Coca. I goes, Raw Coca? Okay. Where can I find him at? She goes, well, I, I don't know. You know, she hadn't seen him in, what, 38 years? You know? Because when they were together or one night stand or whatever it was, she never told me if it wasn't a one night stand, but I think it was. So she goes, I know where your uncle's store is. The Coca downtown furniture in San Jose was, was there for 40, 50 years. It was there for a long time. So she goes, I know where your uncle's furniture store is in downtown San Jose. You could go in there and ask Hank. I said, that would be my uncle. I said, okay. So I was delivering concrete one day right across the street from this furniture store. And I walked in there and. I asked for a Hank Coca, and the gentleman there was Hank Coca Jr., his son. And I said, hey, is, is Hank Coca here? He goes, no, that's my dad. I'm Hank Coca Jr. He goes, oh, okay. How about, you know a raw Coca? And he goes, yeah, that's my uncle. Because oh, okay, well, I'm just going to come and spit it out. I might be his son. And he just looked at me kind of weird, you know, and he goes, well, here's my number. And I put down Roberta Dominguez. No, I put down the bird on my toya because she was a Matoya. So I put that down on the piece of paper with my number. Tell him to call me and my birth mother's no Berta. So my birth mother decided to throw me a, like a little housewarming welcome to the family party a week after that and went over there and that was pretty good. And then about two weeks later, there was a phone on our voice message machine. And it was, uh, hi, this is Royal Coca. I think you might be my son. Let's meet at Original Joe's. That's a famous restaurant in San Jose for dinner. I said, okay. 
So I went to original Joe's and I was waiting out there for him. And here it comes. He's walking down the street and you know, wow, this guy kind of looks like me. He had a, a different build. He was really thin. I'm more of a husky guy. And then we talked and then he goes, okay, okay. He remembered Noberta. He remembered. And then he decided, okay, we better go take a blood test. But then I found out that he was a twin. So his twin looks like me, same body type and everything. Wow. So, yeah, see, so that's the trippy part. I got to know him a little bit, and we took the blood test. Six weeks later, I came back, and it was positive. So we were father and son. And I always remember when I met the Coca side, went into Pacifica, California, and met my aunts and cousins and all that. And they were kind of emotional when they met me because my uh, uncle, which is the twin, he had, he had passed away from cancer. So I kind of resembled him, right? So it's kind mm. of like, you know, and like a ghost coming back, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. So, it's crazy. So so after that, uh, I had to tell my parents that I had found them. I said, okay, but they didn't really say anything like congratulations or encourage me or, or nothing. So then I found out on my 38th birthday that my biological mother wanted to throw me a surprise party. But she threw me a surprise party, but I found out about it two weeks before. Huh. So I go to this restaurant and I walk in the restaurant and there's my biological mother her husband, my mom and dad, seated on the same table. You know, all you see was the anger in my dad's face, and you see the hurt in my mom's face. And I was so, I was just shaking my head. And I go, my God, why would they sit together? <laughs> we sat them in the same table. So that night, this is when I was out. out in the, I, mean, I told you I started drinking when I was 10, and I was still drinking at 38. So that night, I got drunker than drunk just to escape reality, right? But I always remember this one thing at the end of the party. My dad left, and my mom and my dad just looked at me, pointed his finger at me, and says, we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning. And he goes, oh, shit, what do I do now? You know? So the next day, we were at home, and I was thinking about it, and all of a sudden, I felt like my heart was coming out of my chest. And I collapsed to the ground, and I yelled for Tina, and he called an ambulance. I don't know what's wrong with me. So I saw I was having a heart attack, so they came and got me. And I was in ICU for two days because they thought I had a massive heart attack. So while I was in there, <laughs> while I was in there, I always remember this. I was sitting in the bed. Here comes my mom and dad, and they're just looking at me in the room. And then five minutes later, here comes my biological mother walking into the room. <sighs> and they looked at each other and didn't say one word to each other. Oof. They were just looking at me. And I go right there. I was all saying, you know what? If I had a gun right now, I would just blow myself away because don't these people know what they're doing to me? Because see, when I was a teenager, I had suicidal thoughts too because of my sexual abuse. I already had an idea how I was going to kill my abuser and how I was going to kill myself. So I grew up with that in my teenage years. So that day when and I seen them in the room not talking to each other, those same thoughts came back. And I was 38 years old. So it was like 20 years after my teenage years that it came back to me again. So the doctor says, okay, well, did some more tests and says, okay, your heart was enlarged, but it looks like it's normal now. So, okay, but we heard your story and we want you to go see a therapist. Might have had an anxiety attack. <laughs> so I went and we seen this therapist. And of course, the first thing they do, you know, uh, here's some Paxil, here's some antidepressants. Right. So I was at, at his antidepressants for like two to three months. Couldn't work, no nothing, because I was curled up in my bed like a little baby. I could do life. Yeah. After that thing was happening and stuff like that, I went back to work and talked to a gentleman, Isaac Dominguez. I was telling him about my story. He goes, hey, would you come to church with me? And, you know, maybe, you know, you could get some comfort there. And he goes, well, I don't know, because I was still going nuts in my head, right? And so that Friday, I, I went 
to his church like a half hour late, but he was still waiting for me there at the steps. So I went and I said, okay, whatever. But I was just trying to figure out what the heck to do because I was still feeling guilty because my mom was still going through the breast cancer and what happened to me with me being in ICU and what happened to me and me being uncomfortable with everything. Right. And after that, I just started just continuing with life, continuing with life. 20 years later, it just started continuing with life. And to be honest, I mean, our relationship, me and my biological father wasn't too close because he never had children mm-hmm. and he never was married. So all of a sudden, bang, you got a 38-year-old son right. that you never knew you had. And all the kids in the family, all those brothers and sisters, all had big families but him. He was a bachelor all his life. But he had alcohol issues too. He was an AA till the day of his death. And even my biological mother had alcohol problems, she said. So I had it on both sides. So when that happened, like I said, I just continued with life. Me and my biological mother, who kind of butted heads a lot. It was a roller coaster for 20 years because her being a foster parent and the way how sometimes I seen her treating the foster kids and I didn't like people being yelled at kids being yelled at because that's what I got when I was a kid being yelled at and being beaten that's how how I was raised and when I seen her doing that to foster kids we used to butt heads a lot about that and she always thought she knew exactly how I felt and I used to tell her all the time how do you know how I feel just because you take care of foster kids is not giving you right to know how I feel just like I don't know how you feel by giving up a child for adoption Exactly. So why would you, yeah, see, so we used to butt heads a lot about that situation. And like I said, it was a roller coaster. I mean, it was 20 years of, I would say, 50-50 of our relationship of good times and bad times. A lot of times we wouldn't talk to each other. Sometimes we would get back. But it was never her coming to me to try to fix things. It was always me being the good guy and trying to talk it out you know what happened why did we not talk what happened you know i would tell her this is what you did and then she would say well i didn't like what you did to me I was, okay i understand that so we try to understand each other but we would never understand each other till the day she died she didn't talk to me probably the last six months of her life because something an argument that we got into and i didn't appreciate it so but she was a very prideful woman even my biological sister said she's a very prideful woman and she would never apologize to Jim. She yeah. never apologized ever. Mm-hmm. And I realized that. So on my 60th birthday, I got a text. I was wondering if she was going to text me on my 60th birthday. We were in Disneyland and she texted me happy birthday. And then she told me some of her medical issues. It was like maybe a two, three minute text. And two months later after that, I think it was, uh, she was in the hospital. And, and then I got a call that she was dying. And they asked, you want to come see her? He goes, no. He goes, but you could put the phone to her ear. So I said some personal things to her to go ahead and go. And that was it. And there's one thing I always remember that uh, at the services, you know, a lot of people went up there to talk about her and all the good work she did in foster care and all that. But my cousin Randy was like the MC and he was talking about how she was very people always remember uh, Norberta as a very angry woman and but things that changed when I came to the family and found the family she got a little bit more calmer and Randy had told everybody that I put a little more peace in her in her life but I still look at it and it goes if I did put peace in your life why didn't you ever come to me to apologize to the things you did when I used to tell you you shouldn't have did that, but she never would apologize. One thing she always used to tell me, she goes, you know what, Jim? No matter how many times we fight, you're never going to get rid of me. 
always going to be your mother. And I used to tell her, well, then act like a mother. Yeah. And she didn't know how. I mean, people always say, did you love her? Did you ever tell her you loved her? I goes, no, I never told her I loved her. Because I'm not going to say I love you if I don't mean it. Right. And I didn't. I didn't. I buried four parents. And the only time I've ever cried in any of the services was my mom that raised me. I, I cried at the gravesite because I remember my mom telling my dad, Jose, Jose, he's had enough when my dad used to hit me. So she was my protector. Yeah. And the person that sexually abused me was at the gravesite when I took off my corsage and my flower and put it on the casket. So that's the only time I've ever cried in any parents' funerals because I just broke down there. And it was a cry that I've never cried like that ever again till when I was 52 when I broke down and I said it was time for me to tell my wife who the person was that molested me. And she's the only one that knows. She's the only one who knows because the person that molested me lived right across the street from where she used to live. When we were dating, I had to go and pick her up for That's two years in our dates. And he lived right across the street. Oh. She didn't realize that. So I was holding that inside of me too because I still could look at the cross the street. I could still remember the bedroom. I could still remember the sounds, the smells, like it was yesterday. I just had to just suck it up and, and not talk about it until I was 52 years old. And that's when I admitted everything. But like I said, the, my relationship with her was, it, it was it was a roller coaster. I, I could honestly say it was a roller coaster. And I was just tired of always giving in. Mm -hmm. I was always tired of being the guy that always would say, let's talk about it. Or I was tired of always begging for people to love me. You know, yeah. I just like, I don't want to do that no more. I don't want to put the facade on no more. I don't want to beg for people's love and I'm not going to do it no more. And then it was for my own mental health too, because mentally I was going nuts sure. because I was all thinking, you gave me up, you raised all these kids and you have another chance to make it right with me. If I didn't go searching, you would have died with this secret. Nobody would have knew about me. I used to tell her, remember, I went looking for you. You didn't come looking for me. But you put me up on a pedestal like I was a trophy at all the parties. Say, look at my son. Look at my son. Look at look at my son came back. My son came back to me. I was like, everybody used to be looking at me all the time. But I understand that, too. People would look at me and, oh, look at, look at, he looks like this. Or people used to talk about memories and stuff like that. Oh, I hated that because I didn't have no grandparents. And both my grandparents on both sides had passed away before I found the family. So I've always wanted that. I always remember that movie, Antoine Fisher, at the end of the movie. The last scene of the movie is he comes in and meets all his family. And at the dinner table was the patriarchs of the family, the grandmothers and grandfathers. And I remember in the scene that the grandmother knocks on the table to make everybody shut up. And she tells him to come. So he goes by her and she puts her hand on his cheek and she just says, welcome home. And I've dreamed about that all my life, that somebody would say, welcome home, Jim. And you know what? I could honestly say I'm still searching to get home because how things ended but i'm trying to close this chapter of my life but i'm also realized that everything i've gone through is to help others and to give others help and maybe some peace in their life and realize they're not alone and especially a man talking about being sexually abused by another man as a little kid and then 
the abandonment issues and not being wanted. And I mean, 10 years ago, I didn't know one adoptee. Maybe I knew one. And now I know hundreds of adoptees from all over the world. And it's because of me telling my story and, and me being in two other adoptee support groups on Zoom meetings and me knowing all these people. And there's one thing they always tell me is we love you, Jim, because you're so transparent. When you say your story, you, you tell people about yourself. It goes because it's a part of my healing process because people always say, you get healed more by telling your story? Of course, because look at I'm speaking to you right now. I haven't broken down. Mm-hmm. Usually when I first time when I started following my story, I would break down all the time, crying. The past would come back and haunt me. And now I could tell it and, and I don't break down. And I'm helping others, you know, and that's that's what I try to do. I mean, yeah, reunion is great, but sometimes reunions aren't a hallmark story or a movie, you know. There's going to be problems. And mine, like I said, it was a roller coaster. Things I found, to be honest with you, things I found out this past week, which I told you that I needed some answers before I did the interview, I got those answers. And I found out that all those years of her telling me that I was equal to her, all of her kids was not true. And I'm not going to go into the details of why I'm not equal. I could say it was pretty bad. It was a lot of promises and things she told me in those 20 years. That was all a lie. I came to find out it was all lies this past weekend. That everything she used to tell me for the last 20 years didn't come true. And she didn't mean it. Are you still in touch with any of her children? Like, do you have relationships with any of them? Well, let me tell you something. (laughs) Last time I seen my, my siblings was at her funeral, her services. That was two years ago. And I think I talked to my sister, maybe text, maybe twice in two years till a week before this past thanksgiving my cousin randy decided to have a party at his house invite me over and i said okay because i hadn't seen the family in a couple of years so i went over there and my, my sister and brother were there and he goes hey how you guys doing i hadn't seen them in two years and it's kind of like so was it you just were trying to be nice to me where she was living because she made you or did you really care for me? Because if I was so important to you in your life, how come you haven't contacted me in two years? Why do I always, and my wife used to tell me, why don't you call them, babe? And goes, why do I always have to call? Right. Because I'm the one that got deserted. I'm the one that got abandoned. Why can't people come and love on me? I'm tired of begging people to love on me. And I just let it go. And like I said, after that, I talked to my sister. When was it? A week ago. Yeah, a week ago when I got my answer mm-hmm. to the questions I asked her. And I just told her, I goes, well, Wanda, and now I realize that it's true. I wasn't equal, and I was the bastard of the family. And she didn't say nothing. No response to it. Nothing. And I'm just saying, you know what? It's okay. I'm not holding no resentment towards you and Paul. I goes, but... That's how I feel. You're not really planning on trying to have a relationship with them, just see how it goes, but it's not something that you plan to pursue at this point? No. Yeah. No, no, because you know what? It's kind of like if I would have heard some compassion to the answers I got from my questions, maybe I would have thought, man, maybe well, maybe they do care. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't get no compassion. I didn't get no answers, you know, no calls, no nothing. This is what happened, Jim. This is that's what happened, Jim. Okay, so everything that she told me all those years was a lie. And I wasn't equal to all her kids, and I was the bastard. And she didn't say nothing, so I said, 
okay. And I just said, okay, well, I said, well, you, you and her husband, Roger, you guys have a good night. And I told her the reason why I wanted those questions answered because I told her I was doing this interview. And I'm the type of guy that, see, I've lost family members from telling my interview. Family members that I, I was brought up with just because I'm so transparent and I tell the story. People sometimes don't accept the truth and... I told her, I don't like people coming to me saying, Jim, that wasn't true. You're a liar. That's why I told her, you know, I need these answers to my questions because I'm going to give this interview and I want to be truthful as I can. And she understood and she goes, okay, here's your answer. I said, okay. But I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised with the answer yeah, because I, I, I knew how my biological mother was. And there's one thing, you know, that almost the, maybe the interview is almost done, but there's one thing that I'm always going to live by. You know, there's a, a line that's tattooed on my leg to my favorite movie of Antoine Fisher. I'm still standing. I'm still strong, he says, when he goes back to his uh, foster parent and, and the lady that abused him, sexually abused him. And I think I'm going to keep that slogan for the rest of my life. And it's always going to be, you didn't win because I'm still standing and I'm still strong. Yeah. And that's going to be for the rest of my life now. You that's did not win. That's a great attitude to have, definitely. Yeah, that comes from conversations from my wife because she's been with me for 40 years and she sees all my ups and downs and she's, she knows what I've gone through and I can't let the past control me anymore. People always ask me, why do you like telling your story all the time, Jim? Doesn't it bring back so many bad memories? He goes, well, you know what? Sure, it does. But I'm not as bad as I used to when I used to tell my story. And I expect that from people that don't understand about abandonment issues, sexual abuse, I understand that why people say that to me. Mm -hmm. you, you'll never understand. Like, I'll never understand whatever situation you're going through. I mean, I could talk to you about being an alcoholic. I could talk to you about being sexually molested by abandonment and by searching for the unknown. I've been doing it all my life. Yeah. Do you have any relationships with anyone in your adoptive family still? Did any of them survive? Oh, you mean the family that I was raised with? Yes. My relationship with them kind of disappeared in the last, I say, 10 years. The only one I really talk to now is my sister, Barbara. But Barbara, we have that bond because we're both adopted. Right. And I think that's the main reason. And the one thing that I've always was kind of like hurt about was ever since I started telling my story, and I mean, I've done, I don't know, 15, 20 podcasts telling my story, and not one member of either side of my family or nobody has ever came to me asking me who abused me, or I'm sorry for how you were raised, or we're sorry that we didn't talk to you about being adopted, or I'm sorry that we didn't ask you how you felt. No one's ever done that besides my nephew who called me <laughs> two weeks ago when he seen a post on my Facebook that I went to go visit my my mom and dad's gravesite a couple of weeks ago. And I made a video of just telling my mom and dad that I'm still trying to find answers. And I just, I missed them. And my uh, nephew just says, why are you still living in the past, Jim? And I told him, instead of doing that on Facebook, call me up. Yeah. So I told him my story. I go, have you ever listened to my story? He goes, no. And he goes, okay, let me tell you my story. And he broke down and he apologized. He goes, I didn't know you went through all that, Jim. 
you know, and he goes, yeah, of course you did. Because people want to judge people without asking them first, you know, I exactly. mean, be men or just pick up the phone, call each other or better yet, let's look each other in the eyes. It's better when we look in each other in the eyes because we can see each other, how we're really thinking instead of a text or a phone call. Right. Right. But he lives in North Carolina, but at least he called. He's yeah. cared. So, but it's a process that's going to go on forever. I mean, could I say that I do I have family? Huh? But my biological father's side, the Cocas, they've always been really, really loving towards me, but they all live far away from me. And, but they've always loved on me. I mean, I'm not going to say anything about the Antonios and the Dominguez. My cousins loved on me too. It's just that I had a problem with my biological mother. Me and, and my siblings, we lived different lives, how we were raised completely different lives and i mean i was working in the fields when i was 10 years old wow and mm-hmm. everything i got i've earned myself so so i really yeah. just have one more question what sure. what advice would you give to people who are entering into their reunions be very truthful whatever question you want to ask but feel very uncomfortable ask it i mean what are they going to do mm-hmm. either they're going to tell you the truth or they're going to lie to you but at least you're going to tell yourself, no, I did ask that person that question. I did ask it. I'm not going to you know, doubt myself. Damn it. I should have asked that question because you don't know how much longer people will be here on earth. You got to try to get the truth. And that's me. I've always tried to get the truth. So that's why, like I said, I contacted my sister. I got the truth. The truth of it was all lies. That she told me for the 20 years. So try not to have regrets. Ask what you want to ask. Yes, exactly. Don't have regrets doubting yourself because you didn't ask a question. Be truthful and and tell them how you feel. If you have something against somebody, tell them. And don't just think people are thinking something. Ask them. Good communication. Yes, yes. (laughs) It's all about communication. And if you don't have the communication, you're going to live in your past and your past is going to kill you and eat you up inside. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. you have experienced an adoption reunion and would like to speak about it, please contact me at whathappensafterpodcast at gmail.com. Also check out the show's Instagram to see pictures of my guests. Listen next time to find out what happens after. Thanks for listening.